0: Invite y'all to turn in your Bibles to uh, Psalm two, the second Psalm. If you need a pew Bible, there's one on the ends of each of the pews. We, uh, I will mention. I invite you all to be uh, praying for our family. We'll be uh, traveling the next. uh, We got 2,400 miles in the mini with the whole crew over the next 11 days. Need any more? You need any more reason to pray for me? Go, plenty sufficient. for our going up to Virginia for our General Assembly and then going to visit uh, some family and so forth, so we will see see y'all in a little bit. But uh, we are we are thankful for the opportunity to go on that uh, trip. I do ask that you pray for us. A couple of things that just to let you know that are Coming up here, I think, in the next uh, few weeks, one is, if you'll notice, no one's even said anything. I'm impressed. We've been using these little glossy bulletins, which were like a a mistake. Usually you're not supposed to tell people, but I'll just go ahead and tell you that we got those a long time ago. We're trying to be good stewards and use those up before we introduce a, a new bulletin format in a couple of weeks. It's going to give us a little more real estate. So in case you're wondering why you've got these bulletins that are really hard to write on that note page, Um, That's that's why we're just trying to make sure to use those up and be good stewards We're also going to start sending out our weekly emails in a new format and i'll just i'll just tell you I mean It'll be nice for you to get it in a little nicer format The the key thing for you to know is if you want to know prayer requests from sunday morning If you want to know the folks that have visited and their names so you can be praying for them and things that are upcoming We just invite you to read that that email We try to keep it to one email or so a week and so you'll get some information in the future about Uh, that new email uh, format. And then one other new thing, lots of new stuff today. We are starting our summer series uh, through selected psalms. So we're going to do some uh, psalm messages over the summer and various folks coming to uh, preach at different times, folks from within our congregation and folks from without as well. So starting this morning with Psalm 2, which we'll turn to right now, I invite you to stand in recognition of God's word and its Truth and power in our lives all read aloud Psalm 2 as you read along silently. As you do, I invite you to look for how God calls us here to surrender, joyfully to surrender our lives to His Son who comes with His rule and with His precious rescue for us. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. You may be seated. Let me pray for us again. Oh, Father, we thank You for this time in Your Word. And we ask You, Lord, that You would strengthen us through it. Help us to realize, oh, Lord, how... Desperately, we need to hear from you today. And with that in mind, let us pay careful attention to the things that you have for us from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as uh, some of you may know, my wife Patience and I had the privilege of living in St. Louis for a number of years, covering the span of the late 1990s which were glorious years of sports in St. Louis. Our church happened to be located right across the street, in fact, from high-rise condos that housed a lot of the athletic talent during their particular season. Marshall Falk, Isaac Bruce, even Mark McGuire lived just across the way, but I had never personally encountered them. Now, Mark McGuire, I realize his records and so forth have come into some question, but set that aside for just a minute this morning. Imagine the excitement in the town of St. Louis, which maybe, maybe not quite a fair comparison, but Baseball, Cardinals baseball is to St. Louis what college football probably is to Birmingham. It's palpable. People were excited. He had just, of course, broken one of baseball's longest standing and most recognized records, the total home runs in a season. He had wielded his bat to great success and conquered injuries and gone against some of the best pitchers to achieve this feat. So there I was. One day, walking the couple hundred yards from the church down to the corner Starbucks, and as I moved along, I noticed a figure in front of me, and I was going a little faster than he was walking, so I began to catch up to him, and as I came closer to him, I realized that he was not just a large person, but one of the most hugest men I have ever seen. His Baggy jeans and loose-fitting leather jacket barely concealed the strength underneath. My suspicions were confirmed as I gained up close to him as we were going into the Starbucks and looked from the side and realized I was about to be in line for a grande behind the grandest of them all, Mark McGuire. I knew in my mind that he was just a man, just a human being, just a man. And yet I could barely resist the desire to shake his hand. I was so excited to be just standing right next to him and felt a little proud as the rest of the poor Starbucks people were already at their table with their drink. I was in line with him, wanted to get an autograph, wanted some way to respond to his greatness if you will, to surrender to his rule of the baseball world at that time. We look at our passage today, Psalm 2, reminds us that it's appropriate to respond to greatness. It's fitting to respond to greatness, and it's peculiar. It's a big problem when we don't respond to that greatness, And of course, this psalm reminds us of the greatest one, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we fittingly should respond to his rule and his loving rescue. And yet, as we'll begin to walk through these verses, we see right off the bat, they remind us of the fact that we don't have that response. We don't surrender to his rule and rescue. If you want to follow along in the bulletin, there is a section there for you, and it lists that. Main idea, it's pretty straightforward. The Son of God rules and reigns, this psalm tells us. And so we do well. We do well to surrender to Him. To surrender to the beauty of His work. So we start to look at these verses, though. And if you read the Scriptures carefully, hopefully we're reading them. Of course, chapter uh, Psalm 2, verse 1, it says, Why do the nations rage, the peoples plot in vain? But then it goes on to talk about the kings of the earth setting themselves and the rulers taking counsel together. and other places, it speaks about these kings being wise and these rulers. And so we may want to say, okay, well, this sounds like sort of a psalm for presidents and heads of state. Maybe that's what this psalm is for. Before you kind of dismiss it and push it aside, though, what the psalmist is actually saying here is that the kings, the rulers, are kind of the pinnacle of... Humanity, if you will, they're the leaders, and it's saying this, that if even the kings and rulers need to submit, need to surrender to the rule and rescue of the Son of God, how much more so do normal folks like you and like me need to? If it's true for kings and rulers, how much more so for us? Second sort of objection that we might have, or question we'll call it, We might look at this and say, well, goodness. What are you talking? About? Whether, whether you're talking about the kings or whether you're talking about verse 1 with these nations and peoples, they all seem really opposed to God. And haven't a lot of us here said that we affirm and want to put our life under the lordship of Jesus? In fact, we just had those membership questions read up here. Many of us have affirmed those. Haven't we said that we want to do that? So how does this apply to us? How does this relate to us? Well, of course, we... No, if we've been walking the Christian life for even a day or two or years and years, that what we say, and we even mention it in our member questions I just shared a minute ago, that we endeavor to live as becomes followers of Christ. We're trying to do that, but so often, instead of surrendering to the Son of God and His Lordship and His rescue, we look for rescue and rule in so many other things, in the things of this world, in our success, in our children's success, in our own personal comfort, in our own pleasure, even in our own religious self-righteousness. We'll go to that instead of to Jesus to find our hope and life not just that we have an internal problem with this, we actually have, it's sort of indicative of a a national symptom, okay? And I, I love our country and I am so thankful for all the blessings we enjoy, so hear that. But at the same time, there's a danger to where we live and to how we think about life. Anthony Trollope, back in the 1860s, wrote something about American society. He was one of these guys from Europe that came over and visited. And it's always helpful sometimes to have an outside perspective. Maybe in your company or organization you've had an outside consultant come in, and sometimes that helps to get an outside perspective. And so that's what I look at this as on our spiritual life. But he wrote this back in the 1860s, and it sure resonated with me about my spiritual life, about my reaction to the Lordship and the rescue of Jesus. He said this about American American people and particularly American Christians. He said they're willing to have religion as they are willing also to have laws. But they choose to make it religion that is for themselves. They don't object to paying for it even but they like to have the handling of the article for which they pay. As descendants of the Puritans They'll submit to some religious teaching, but as members of a republic, they're not going to have any hierarchy. And then listen to his concluding statement. They say their prayers and then seem to apologize for doing so, as though it were hardly the act of a free and enlightened citizen justified in ruling himself as he pleases. Isn't that true of us? don't have to be American, I guess, to have that attitude, but it's symptomatic of us. We're not going to put ourselves under one. We're not going to put ourselves in that place of dependence. Well, why should we do this? Why does it make sense, then, to, to desire to change, to ask God to change our hearts so that we become people that actually delight in the rescue that the Son provides and delight in His rule well the passage tells us a couple of reasons the biggest one is that this is no mark mcguire (laughs) this is no passing athlete that we're going to find out later was you know helped along incredibly towards his success this is the son of god who we are called to follow and to worship verse 7 of psalm 2 the lord said to me you are my son Today I have begotten you. If you jump back to that verse 2, the rulers are setting themselves against. Well, what are they setting themselves against? The last part of that verse, against his anointed, against his anointed. That's a real specific phrase in the Bible, folks. It refers, in fact, Christ, the word Christ means anointed one. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that is expressed in this song. And that's, Important for us to realize for a couple of reasons. One, you know, these psalms were written, a lot of them, by King David and about the kings of the time. But there's no way they can possibly be fulfilled by those kings. They're, they're, there's a short-term fulfillment of all of them, and then there's a long-term fulfillment. The long-term is in Christ himself. That helps us address one of the questions we might have, and then I'll get into a few applications of uh, points for us from this psalm. Look back with me at that verse 7. Again, if you're perhaps of a sort of skeptical mindset, maybe you're just visiting today and sort of beginning to explore the Christian faith, um, and, and I tend to you know, approach the gospel in a kind of skeptical way, that's sort of my bent, so I can sympathize uh, with that. Or, or perhaps uh, you, you've had someone at your door from the uh, Mormon church or the uh, Jehovah's Witness. If they were to see this verse, verse 7 of Psalm 2, they might want to hunker down on it for a little while because it says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. If you're reading again, if you're reading these verses carefully, you say, well, I thought we believed that Jesus was eternally the Son of God, and indeed we do, rightly so. A a plethora of verses refer to that. John chapter 1 is one place where it says, "In In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus was the exact radiance of God's being. Colossians reminds us that in Jesus all the fullness of deity dwells. So we know from the broad scope of Scripture. So how do we understand then these verses where it says, Today I have begotten you. Well, it helps again to understand you had a king that would be born into a royal family, but they had a a certain time whenever the next leader ahead of them died then that was when they rose up and ascended to that place. And you also see that, in a sense, in the Gospels. Though Jesus comes fully God, fully man from his birth, he also has these points where he's baptized by John and the dove descends. And it says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And when he goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember he brought a few of the disciples with him. And God's glory comes down on him and they see some of who he is. So when it talks about Jesus here, this is the Jesus it's referring to, the eternal Son of God. And so we rightly then, is telling us in these verses, surrender our lives to his rule and rescue. Let's talk about what that looks like for a minute. Number one, as we look at these verses, it reminds us that resistance to the Son is futile. Resistance to the Son is futile. Uh, Some of y'all know that in my previous capacity as an assistant pastor, I had a title. I didn't come up with it. It seemed kind of clever at the time, but my title was a pastor of equipping and assimilation. And I always used to get the Star Trek joke about the Borgs, and only those of you that even have watched some Star Trek, so I can see you smiling out there, you Trekkies, that the Borgs would always say resistance is futile. Well, I don't know that this has a whole lot of correlation to that. What it does tell us in these verses is that the Son of God rules and reigns, so resistance to Him is really just a waste of our time. Did you ever think about that? We spend so much of our time, myself included, trying to find ways, instead of seeking the Lord and having deeper dependence upon Him, instead of running to, to grow deeply in His Word, instead of really coming to worship on Sunday, engaged and wanting to seek Him, we're just... I almost, can I find some other way? I just I want to do something else. I don't really want to do this. And do you ever think about how, how ridiculous that is? He's the Lord of the universe. He's come into our world, and he reigns over his church. How absurd this psalm is saying. Why, it says, that's the first word of it, to the nation's rage. Why do we try to live our lives without Jesus at the center of them? Dorothy Sayers wrote this uh, about Jesus, and, and I, I, I cite this, read this, to help us deal a little bit with the violence in this passage. Okay, I read through some of these verses pretty quickly. This is a forceful passage. There's no way around it. If you read this and read the words, it's powerful. It proclaims God's strength, his wrath, and his power. It, that's got to be part of our view of who God is to have a full view of God. But Dorothy Sayers, I think, helps us with this. She says the dogma, this teaching, if you will, about Jesus, is that we find so dull, this terrifying drama of which God is the victim and the hero. She's talking about Jesus dying for our sins. If this is dull, she says, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? The people who hanged Christ never to do them justice accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. And then listen to this, what she says. It's been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality. Surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently paired the claws. From the lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale pastors and pious old ladies. Those who knew him well, however, objected to him as a dangerous firebrand. What's our picture of Jesus? We start to see this picture that God gives us, we'll realize. Why in the world would we want to try to live our lives in any other way than coming before him and rejoicing to walk in him? We've got uh, four boys, as most of y'all know, and the the youngest one, just a couple of weeks, turned uh, three. So he went from two to three. And this was a big day, apparently, for him. You know, we had the party and so forth, but he was really tracking with it. He's got the model of big brotherhood, so that's probably part of this factor from his three other brothers. But he's got in his mind, apparently, what it means to be a big brother. So we discovered literally, so birthday one day and then next day, dramatic change. Number one, he began to attempt to go to the bathroom the same way that his older brothers do. Uh, He took off his diaper, didn't want to wear his diaper anymore, didn't want to take any more naps, went upstairs, you know, nobody directed him to do this, began to go through his big brother's drawers and put on their clothing that doesn't even come close to fitting him, and then uh, the icing on the cake, he wasn't going to sit in that crazy car seat anymore. Well, some of y'all, maybe been a little while since the car seat stage. Some of us are right in it. Some of us, maybe that time will be coming. But, you know, the fact is that that seat, as crazy as that astronaut thing that we put our kids in, you know, is, it keeps them safe. It helps them. And so most of us as parents, generally speaking, take our time to put the child in there. And we put them in there because it's a good place. It's a safe place for them to travel. We want to go someplace, but they need to be safe. And I'll tell you what, although those little buggers can be slippery, and, of course, you don't want to hurt them, if if Daddy wants them to go into the car seat, resistance is futile, isn't it? They're going into the car seat, and it's good for them. What about us? As we think about the lordship of Jesus Christ and his loving, good reign, what a beautiful thing, really, it is to surrender to that. Resistance to it is futile. Second point, we'll move a little more quickly now. Second thing these verses tell us is the reign of the sun is comprehensive. So resistance to the sun is futile. The reign of the sun is comprehensive. If you look with me at verse 8, it talks about this. It says, The son is to ask of God, and God will make the nations his heritage, the ends of the earth, your possession. Now, again, King David and some of these folks had a pretty big reign and span of reign. This is the ends of the earth we're talking about. Comprehensive rule that God has over each part of our life and over every inch of our world and universe. Growing up in uh, Yankee land, as I did, as you all know, we, uh, we had a breakfast product. Uh, the biscuit is real big down here in the south, and I enjoy a biscuit. They have this product in the north. Maybe some of you all have seen or heard about or observed in the museum. It's called an English muffin. And the English muffin is relatively smooth on the outside, and apparently this company, Thomas, has a lock on the thing because I've never seen anybody else sell them. So Thomas English muffins. And they have this line of commercials, and the thing is smooth on the outside, but you're supposed to kind of break it open. And on the inside of that English muffin, there's a lot of terrain, if you will. And, in fact, the commercial would always talk about, they'd take this butter and spread it, and it it looked delicious on those commercials growing up, and they'd spread it over, and they'd say, the butter gets down in every nook and cranny, in every nook and cranny. That's a picture to me, a simple one, but of what God's rule, what the rule of the Son of God is, that it gets into every nook and cranny of our lives. There's not a place, there's not a person that you talk to and seek to love in the name of Christ. There's not a situation at work that you try to deal with and and, and do in a way that glorifies God. There's not a relationship situation in your family that you don't try to resolve before God that, that He doesn't care about or know about or is involved with. God is in all of those things he's in the nooks and crannies and guess what else this tells us he's not only in those nooks and crannies he's all over the world in those things and I think we get a little bit of a and I know I come back to this from time to time we get a little of a defeatist posture as believers in our country uh, we celebrated Memorial Day weekend last weekend and Maybe if you're in the West, if you're in Europe or in you're in, in America, you feel like a little bit the culture's pushing back against the Christian message, and there doesn't seem to be as much public influence, and, and we sort of get frustrated by that, and we can tend to kind of rock back on our heels, get pushed back on our heels. Let me, let me tell us this today, because I need to hear it, and I hope you' all will hear it. The God that is described in this psalm too, and his son is not back on his heels. He's not confused about what's happening. And in fact, every time, if you, all these things we hearken back to, the first great awakening with George Whitefield and Jonathan Edwards and God's move in the lives of the people of our, our, our land. And then in the early 1800s, the second great awakening where God moved and you know, prisons shut down because they didn't have any prisoners to put in them because people were really being transformed by the gospel. All of those movements of God, do you know what was going on right before those movements of God happened? Do you know what society looked like? They don't focus on that a lot in the history. Things were absolutely collapsing. Boston, just a couple of decades after the pilgrims had landed and tried to establish this thing on, on God's principles, just a couple of decades after that was filled with obvious and bold sin. And then the great awakening, the winds of God's working blows in. The rule of the sun is comprehensive. If he decides to blow in and blow into the life of your family or blow into our church or blow into our city or our country in the snap of his fingers, he can work powerful transformation. That's the kind of God this psalm tells us about. His rule is comprehensive. Last thing, and it really deserves much more time than we'll have to give it today. And I... Titled the main or the point on your outline this way, but I think you'll see where I'm going. Is that the reverence reverence for the sun is necessary? Look with me at verse uh, 10 and 12, really those two verses. It says, "Therefore, kings be wise." Again, he's talking to kings, but it applies to us. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice. Why are we supposed to rejoice? Because we have the opportunity. Verse 12 to kiss the sun, and then the last part of that verse, blessed are all who take refuge in him. What's that talking about? What does it mean when it says, kiss the son? Well, it's telling us that we have an opportunity. This one who rules that we've been talking about his power and resistance to him is futile and his comprehensive reign, guess what? He'd be dangerous to us if we don't find our refuge in him. If we don't rest in him, trust in him, find our eternal life in him. And it's describing it with the idea of a kiss just saying that's the way we embrace this one. That's an embrace, a taking into our lives of this one Jesus. And I love that last sentence. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's a good promise for us today, isn't it? That we can worship this Son of God who is all of these powerful things. And find our life and find security in Him. Find our sustenance in Him. Because as we embrace Him, He promises He will provide refuge for us. He's not weak. He's not frail. He's a safe place for us to put our lives and our hopes and all that we are. We should kiss the Son. Find refuge in Him. Let me conclude with... This, I uh, recently got around to, and and bear with me, I'm going somewhere with this. Uh, I recently got around to watching the new Clash of the Titans movie. Uh, It happens that my wife really likes the old 80s version with Harry Hamlin, and I think it's even got like Lawrence Olivier or something. It's got a few actors or whatever in them. But anyway, she really likes that one, and I figured the new one was going to be a sort of special effects improving on the old one. Because if you've ever seen the old one on TV with the little robotic owl, and it's got the the creatures in it that look like my kids could make them out of Play-Doh in about, you know, 20 minutes, that's kind of the special effects level. I figured, okay, new Clash of the Titans. Let's see what this one has got. It's going to have some nice new special effects and the monsters and all that stuff. Well, of course, both of them are basically movies about, you know, Greek, Greek or Roman mythology or whatever, so don't, don't take this too far. But it was really intriguing to me. Patience gets annoyed when I, when I watch these movies and I analyze them as I'm watching them and make judgments about our culture, but it's there, absolutely, in this case. Uh, you know, Perseus, the hero of the story... In the old 80s version, and of course, it's no, it's no apologetic for the Christian faith, this old movie. I'm not saying that. But it's interesting that Perseus is given this opportunity. He's got weapons. He's got shields. He's got this horse that flies. He's got the little owl, even the crazy little robotic owl. And he's given those things by these sort of divine powers. And he's supposed to be sort of a half-divine, half-human kind of person, a son of Zeus, if you will. He's given all these things. And he uses them. He, he's excited that he has all this shield and this weapon and this horse, and he makes full use of them. I don't know how many of you have seen the new movie, and this you know they're not probably movie, either one of them, movies for the whole family to view together. But um, the new one is really interesting because Perseus in the new movie doesn't want to have one thing to do with any of the things that the divine ones provide for him. He's going to handle it on his own. And in fact, he seems almost more determined to fight back against the gods than he does to fulfill what at least I thought was his main mission, you know, defending Argos and rec- rescuing the damsel in distress. That's what I thought he was about. And so it was interesting at the very end of the movie that Zeus and Perseus have this conversation after Perseus, this is in the newer version, has rescued finally, and achieved all these great feats, kind of going against the gods and kind of doing it on his own, Zeus says, okay, so this is the divine one, says to Zeus, we owe you a debt of gratitude, Perseus. And then he goes on and explains uh, his care, Zeus's care and concern for Perseus, and he says this, he says, I wanted men to worship us, the gods, again, but I didn't want it to cost me a son. Perseus replies to him and says to Zeus, that's almost human of you. As if humanity is the highest pinnacle of existence. And then Zeus suggests to Perseus that he ought to throw in his lots with the gods. He's achieved all these great feasts. You can come and join our fraternity and be one of the gods. And Perseus says this very telling thing. He says... I've got everything I need right here. Well, it's taken a corrupt mythology belief and corrupting it further, but it pressed in my mind, and as I thought about this psalm, what a beautiful thing, what an amazing thing that God has a different plan, a different way of carrying things out. That he sent his son, fully God and fully man, and that son's full purpose was to secure his rule and reign independence in a place of dependence upon his heavenly father and using all that his father would give him and to achieve that victory by his death, precisely by his giving himself his death and resurrection. It's a dramatic contrast. Because of all these things, because of the glory of the Son of God, because of His rule and rescue, we're invited today to put ourselves in a good place of surrendering, of yielding our lives to the Son of God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do praise You and thank You that You have sent Your Son and that this Son rules, and also rescues us. Oh, Lord, we desperately need that rescue, and we thank you for it. Oh, Lord, let us see, behold in our lives the insanity of trying to break free from the cords of the living God and of His Son. Oh, Lord, let us see the beauty of resting our lives in the refuge that the Son provides perfectly for us. Lord, let us find our salvation, our hope, our life in that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.